You're listening to the Inspire Excellence Podcast, recorded at the BVA headquarters with your hosts, Bill Whitaker and Tommy Alquist. Bill is the former CEO of the J.R. Simplot Company and is now a full-time adventure seeker and philanthropist. Tommy is the CEO of BVA Development, co-founder of Crush the Curve Idaho, and most importantly, a full-time grandfather. Each episode focuses on sharing the stories of individuals who are changing the world. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Inspire Excellence. Uh, I'm joined today with my co-host, Bill Whitaker, and we are very, very excited to have uh, this guest on, Dr. David Pate, um, one, of the, one of the leaders here in the Treasure Valley that's been around and, and, and really uh, has led us through St. Luke's as the CEO for over a decade. And then, David, since retirement, you, uh, you haven't slowed down, buddy, a bit. No, no. Uh, you haven't slowed down a lot of ways. And then I'll, and as part of your introduction, David, I'll tell you, uh, during this pandemic, um, and just there's so much noise out there, having someone with a trusted voice, you, you read more, you know more, you dig deeper than anybody I know. And then what I really appreciate about you, David, is the clarity in which you explain things. Uh, oh, thank whether, you. You're, whether you're a physician or, or a, a lay person, you make it easy for us to understand. So we're excited to have you on our Inspire Excellence podcast today, and, and thanks for making time. And I know Bill knows That's you well, pleasure. too. Well, yes. I do. And, and actually, you know, so I was thinking this morning when I was driving in here to do the podcast, um, I was thinking about Audrey Dutton, and Audrey does such a great job with the two of you uh, when she interviews you. And uh, and I thought, there's no way that uh, that I can help like Audrey helps you guys. But you guys are my friends, and mm-hmm. you've been my friends for a long time, and uh, you're important to me. And so this is a really fun one for me that I'm looking forward to the discussion. Well, thanks, Bill. Hey, David, what we always get into when we start and, and uh, you know, as, as the leader and your background a little bit, can you just tell us a little bit about your, your journey and uh, just a little bit about leadership and, and maybe focus for folks, for our, our usual audience out there, young entre- entrepreneurs and, and CEOs that may be listening of some of the experiences you've had and uh, just as part of your introduction. But let's start there. Sure. Thank you, Tommy. It's uh, it's great to be with you both. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, I wanted to be a doctor since I was knee high and um, <clears throat> I, uh, I, I, I went to medical school. I did my residency training um, all in Houston um, and I, I did my residency training in internal medicine. And, uh, you know, my thought was uh, I'd probably read I'd probably die at my desk in my office after seeing patients all day. Uh, and <clears throat> but it, there was a strange uh, twist of things. So uh, when the uh, when Bill Clinton was elected uh, president, of course, um, the big thing there was health care reform. And uh, being a, a general internist, uh, doing primary care, being in the Texas Medical Center, I, I saw the flaws with our health care system very vividly. And I got very interested in health care reform, but I didn't know how could I make a difference because like you know Tommy when we're seeing patients you know it's it's one patient in front of us we're focused on that one patient and then we go to the next patient but if you really want to change healthcare you have to look at a much higher level but I didn't know how to do that and so one thing I thought is um, 
you know, I don't understand the legal system. I don't understand how laws are made. I don't know how to change laws. I don't know how to change policy. Uh, and I ended up going to law school at night. So I would, I would do my medical practice during the day. I had a fantastic nurse that could take my calls at night and just interrupt me if I really had to get out of class. But I go to, to class at night. On the weekends, I'd take my uh, little girls uh, to, uh, you know, Discovery Zone or the park or someplace where they could play. And I'd take my cup of coffee and my law books and sit there and read cases uh, while they played. Uh, and uh, so then uh, a couple years later, uh, I started getting approached by people that wanted me to take medical leadership positions. And it's not something I'd ever thought about. Uh, but um, but I thought, well, you know, maybe this is the way I start to make a difference. And so um, uh, in uh, 1995, I uh, was halfway through law school and I um, took a position as a medical director for a the large flagship hospital of St. Luke's, which is no relation to this one in the Texas Medical Center. And I started working as a medical director, but I couldn't give up my practice because I, I mean, that's been my life's dream. And after two years, I said to myself, um, you got to figure out what you're going to be when you grow up, because doing these two full-time jobs, half time each was not working. And so I decided to uh, go full-time into the hospital leadership, uh, eventually became chief medical officer of the entire system, and then um, uh, uh, became uh, the CEO of this flagship hospital, which you know, it was really mind boggling for me because I could remember the days as a medical student walking in the Texas Medical Center. And if you've ever been in the Texas Medical Center, I mean, it is in, incredibly intimidating and inspiring. Um, and to think that one day I would be the CEO of, of one of those hospitals was amazing. So I had a, um, a really uh, interesting turn in my career. I uh, loved being the CEO. I figured that that was the next thing I thought, well, I'm going to die at my desk in the hospital uh, uh, in being the CEO uh, when I got a, a call from a recruiter that I knew that um, uh, St. Luke's uh, was looking for a CEO of their health system. I thought, well, okay, I, I like St. Luke's. And so I asked him, is it St. Luke's in New York, uh, Iowa? And I started running through all the states that have St. Luke's and I didn't yet get to Idaho. So he uh, said, no, it's in Boise. And I said, isn't that and then in Idaho, and I'd never thought of coming to Idaho, and all my family was in Houston. So uh, he said, just come up. It, it won't cost you anything. You get to see it. If you don't like it, you just go back on home. I said, okay, I'll come up. Well, I came in May, which is just the perfect time to come visit. And uh, I uh, just fell in love with Boise overnight. Uh, and, uh, and then I met with uh, the search committee. Um, of the board and it was extremely impressed uh, with the knowledge and passion and dedication of the board members. So um, I, um, uh, I thought, well, I really like this. And uh, so I was traveling home. I had to make a connection through the Denver airport and they called me and said, um, the, the recruiter called me and said, uh, David, good news. Uh, uh, the board wants you to come back for a second interview. And I said, awesome. Uh, that's great. And then they said, and this time they want you to bring your wife. And I said, uh-oh. And uh, so 
when I got home, my wife's a native Texan. Uh, I had to explain to her uh, why I thought she should come with me. Uh, all she knew about Idaho was potatoes and Paul Revere and the Raiders. Uh, and uh, so I got her up here. Uh, and fortunately, it, it took her an extra day more than it took me. But then she fell in love with the place. And then obviously, we got the, um, the offer and the position. So uh, it's been a wonderful run with St. Luke's uh, Health System. I think... You know, the the several things that I, uh, you know, take away from my career there as um, some of the greatest accomplishments. Uh, one is um, I, I think I was really able to put together uh, an all star team of executives, people I'd put up against any other health system. Um, secondly, uh, I think in working with a uh, really outstanding board, uh, we went from the health system being a holding company, essentially to really being an operating company. And we, we made it a true health system, which was important because one of the things I promised the board is I would make us a national quality leader. And I don't think you can do that unless you come together as a system. And of course, we accomplished that. And that's one of my proudest achievements. Um, and uh, that we were uh, became a national quality leader and, and did so every year since. Uh, and then I think the other thing is, uh, uh, Tommy, uh, you and I and others talk all the time that one of the fundamental problems with our American healthcare system is the fee for service uh, methodology. It rewards the wrong incentives. It's not what we say we want from healthcare. And so, while a lot of uh, my colleagues talk about, yeah, that's the problem, we need to move to value. Uh, due to the courage of my team and the board, uh, we actually. Uh, made a jump into value. And so on January 1st, 2017, uh, uh, we moved one third of our business into full risk where we got paid a certain amount. That was all we were going to get paid. And we were responsible for all the care of all these patients, no matter where they got it. And so I think those are the things I'm the most successful, I'm the most uh, proud of. You know, David, I got to uh, live that with you uh, at St. Luke's. And um, and what was really interesting to me is the way you provided knowledge to the board members. I mean, um, you, you have this ability, first of all, to listen and mm -hmm. to really hear what people's concerns are. But on top of that, uh, you provided knowledge to us because you had to take us you had to take us on a journey to move from a revenue base of fee-for-service to a, a, a significant revenue base of value. And, uh, and I will never forget that and always appreciate it, but uh, it was so significant. Uh, there were some board meetings when I know that you were thinking, boy, I wonder if I'll get all these board members over the uh, hump here. And that was yeah. probably, would you guess, six years ago? Yes. Six, yes. Five, six, seven years ago would be my yeah. guess. And the yeah. and it's been the exact right thing to have happen. Exactly the right approach. Well, thank you, Bill. And I, I think um, I, I think several things. First of all, uh, you know, just the high compliment you paid me at the very beginning that I was willing to listen. Boy. Isn't that something we need a lot more of today? Yeah. If people would yeah. just spend more time listening to others' concerns, 
um, uh, in, instead of uh, coming out and just hammering people uh, yeah. because of their concerns. Um, you know, the second thing that I think is important to point out is the courage of the St. Luke's board. Um, listen, history is replete with examples of industries that saw change coming, knew they probably needed to change their business model uh, to adapt to it. And yet, because they were doing well in their incumbent business model, um, they couldn't make the change. And many of those companies have failed. Uh, we could list them and everybody would know who they are. Um, it's not easy to change. Uh, I mean, it, it's easy to change if your house is on fire. But if yeah. the organization's doing well, that takes real courage. And I think it was that special relationship that the board and I had of mutual trust, of listening, of being open, of being willing to consider new things that really was cr critical to our success. Yeah, I agree. That's and, and, exactly and, the way it should be. Let me add a little bit to the both of you, because for those listening, th this is not a little shifting of the of the ship, right? This is a major disruption, because if you look at healthcare, uh, from the time we kind of invented insurance with the blues, all the way till the last five, six, seven years, David, and you were on the leading edge of that, we had been at a fee-for-service model, mm -hmm. um, which made sense early when you went to yep. the doctor and either traded a chicken or a goat yeah. or, <laughs> or, or, or paid them to help you yep. all the way through to where it became a, a big business where mm -hmm. you were. it was a fee-for-service business. And this idea that you'll get paid for value, it's hard to explain to folks. And, and, and frankly, David, for, for physicians and people that have grown up in medicine, it, yep. it's, it, 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 your, your brain is not wired to think, I'm going to get paid for keeping people healthy. I'm going to get paid so much a patient, and I'm going mm -hmm. to make that work for a population. That is, it, that is incredibly uh, forward thinking and not easy, David, at all. And so I uh, congratulate you for, I mean, you were, you were you. way ahead of the curve on this, on saying, hey, we need to disrupt ourselves. And, you know, and it's hard. And it's, and it's, it's very it's, hard. It, it, it's still going on, right? But I think uh, for everyone listening out there, you'll hear in the coming years, it will be the healthcare organizations that shifted to value-based uh, reimbursements and, and incentives for the whole systems and, and specifically the providers that are going to survive and thrive. And the old fee-for-service uh, is not. So uh, big deal. Hey, D D uh, David, one other question before we get into some real uh, pertinent topics on COVID because you're such an expert there. Um if you had a young CEO listening right now, we have a lot of them. Uh, you know, I, I hear, I, I just smile from ear to ear when I hear your stories of working full-time, going to law school, young family, balancing all that, having the passion and drive to do that. And, and I've, I've been around you and your family, uh, your family first guy. I know, I know how much you love your grandkids. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I just know that you've done that too. Give, give us just a little bit of advice to someone listening out there that may be on the start, front end of their career, whatever industry they're in. As one of the respected leaders, what, what, what advice would you give them? You know, I think uh, uh, one of the key points of advice for either those that want to become a, a CEO or who are a new CEO is observe all the leaders you can. 
uh, and and learn from them and and appreciate the mistakes that other leaders uh, make because you can learn way more from those mistakes than oftentimes you can from their successors. Um, I would uh, I would uh, when I was going in my administrative career. Every opportunity I had to volunteer for something, if there was going to be some new project or some new things, I, I just wanted to learn about it. And so get all the experiences you can, but find people that you can look to and, and learn from their leadership. Um, you know, half of my leadership uh, traits are because of some really fantastic role models I had, uh, really tremendous people that I've tried to live up to their standards. And then half of it is seeing stuff in other people and saying, I'm never going to do that or I'm going to learn from that and not ever do that. And so I think those are important. I think the other thing uh, is, uh, you know, I think it's 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 really difficult and we see this play out all the time uh, around the country. It's difficult to maintain your humility uh, as a CEO and, and you need to uh, and you need to be very humble. You, that doesn't mean you should be insecure or not confident, but you need to be humble. You need to understand you may not have all the answers. And so one thing is um, surround yourself with people that think differently than you because they'll save your bacon. Uh, if you're only and we've seen this play out in the last uh, four years, if you just surround yourself by people who are terrified to tell you that they think you're making a mistake or that just are going to tell you how wonderful you are and everything that you say is the right thing, you're going to make lots of mistakes. So surround yourself with people that think differently. And then the, the other thing I would say is that Bill was very gracious with his uh, comments, but I'll tell you, I learned a lot from board uh, board members. And I think if you think outside your industry, uh, we oftentimes just get, you know, especially in healthcare, we just think, well, what are other healthcare leaders doing? Well, no, you need to think broader. What are other leaders in other industries doing that I can learn from that I can apply to healthcare? So those would be some of the advice. Boy, just fantastic. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, I guess we could talk leadership with David and you, Tommy, forever, and it just wouldn't stop. You know, when it comes right down to it, the opportunity to, per, to interact with other human beings and interact with, and it's not just leadership with your company or maybe your church or the school board or whatever. There are opportunities to share ideas and, and, and concepts and dialogue in a really responsible way. And mm -hmm. uh, because when, at the end of the day, aren't we interested in knowledge yeah. and then the potential of influence? And you can lose either one of those real quickly if you're not careful. A absolutely. We, we've, we've seen lots of examples of that lately, too. Yeah. <laughs> and, sure. and, and just before we pivot on to another topic, I, the other thing I, I listen when I when I'm listening to you both talk and, and I 
know, Bill is one of my mentors. I love watching mm-hmm. him in a boardroom and just learning from him. But yeah. leadership never, you never stop learning to be no. a better leader, right? I mean, no. it's a lifelong pursuit to improve, find your blind spots, figure out how to listen and be better. And uh, it's it's not a place you really arrive at, right? It's a place you. Yes, right. It, it's a it's a it's a lifelong quest to be a better leader and to help people. And I really think it starts with serving others too. And I, they, that's does. why I think we love being around you. Is that's what it's about. It's about the patient. It's about the people around you. Uh, so we appreciate that. Hey, uh, if we can pivot a little bit, David, we we've mm-hmm. got to take the time with you to get some questions in sure. on COVID. So, you know, it's been, we're coming up. I, I, what I'm loving right now is, is reviewing all of the tweets and, and history <laughs> from, from, from one year ago. And we're, 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 we're hitting our anniversary when this yeah, thing kind of all Hard started. to believe. I can't believe it's only been a year. And um, there's been a lot going on. And David, you and I have, have had the fortune uh, of, of being able to help, I think, some people and be kind of in the middle of it, if you will. And we get asked a lot of questions uh, all the time. Uh, you yep. know, our, fo- our phones never stop uh, no. with people asking us questions, emails. How can we help people? <clears throat> uh, David, there's a lot of there's a lot of myths still out there. Oh, there's yeah. a lot of misinformation. And, and so rather than like reflecting on maybe what we have done or talked about in the past, here we sit on, you know, we're in the middle of March. Uh, there's a lot of things going well. We have a vaccine now. Uh, spring is coming. That's a good thing. Um, we, 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 our healthcare systems are not overwhelmed right now, uh, mm-hmm. but we have these, these different vaccines available to us. Um, what, what do you think some of the biggest myths out there are, or what makes you just bristle when you hear things? And maybe we can help some of our listeners out there share good information to combat some of the bad information out there. What are the, what are the top three you hear all the time? Well, you know, I think one that uh, I'm particularly uh, dealing with right now is, and and it's amazing, uh, Tommy. Uh, you're you're exactly right. We we seem incapable of learning from things that uh, happen, and and I'm not talking about we need to go back to medieval history. I'm talking about last year, uh, and so um, we've just had. Three, three spikes, uh, three surges, whatever you want to talk, they call them. Um, so we had our first uh, a year ago, uh, and that's when the governor did the uh, stay at home orders. Uh, then you remember there was all the discussion about, well, uh, it, it's it's a coronavirus, so it's going to be seasonal. Uh, and yet then in the summer, uh, we had a bigger, much bigger spike than we did when it started in March. Um, I'm starting to hear uh, those uh, myths come again. Oh, this is going to be seasonal, so it's going to go away um, in the spring and summer. Well, uh, no. Uh, and all you have to do is look to the southern hemisphere right now, and you see it's not seasonal. Um, the uh, the other thing is uh, every time we went through one of those surges and we we're coming down, uh, everybody was ready to celebrate and loosen up, and yet we had a surge that followed that was bigger. And and so we had the summer surge and then we had one uh, in the fall and it was bigger yet. And so we've been coming down off of that and coming down very steeply. So understandably, again, that gave people a lot of encouragement. Uh, I've been sounding the alarm. Hey, we need to be careful uh, because uh, of a couple things. Uh, First of all, uh, the other thing that we've been really bad about is 
looking at what's happening elsewhere in the world, uh, because uh, take Europe, for example, there's several weeks ahead of us. I mean, this is a tremendous opportunity. We can look at a preview of coming attractions. Now, I'm not saying for sure exactly what happened in Europe will happen here. Uh, there are uh, some uh, moving parts that it could be different. but. Uh, without a compelling reason why it's going to be different, we should be taking notice of that. And, you know, I talked about running a hospital in, in, um, in, in Houston. Tommy, you'll appreciate this. So, uh, in Houston, uh, one of the things we have to worry about is hurricanes. Uh, and so, we get these forecasts of a, a hurricane coming. And what happens is they give you this cone and they give you certain probabilities of where the landfall and the track of the hurricane is going to be. But the hospital that <clears throat> I ran was 27 stories tall and had a fair amount of glass. And so now we were rated for a category three hurricane. But guess what? Occasionally we'd have uh, category four and five hurricanes coming right at us. And uh, even if your building's rated for a category three, you, that doesn't mean you can't still can't have damage. It just means it's not going to collapse if it's less than a three. Um, and so, uh, you know, one thing I was trying to explain to some people here is in Houston, anytime we had the hurricane warning and, and there we were within that cone, I went to the hospital. I slept at the hospital. We increased our emergency uh, preparedness status. We opened our command center. I'd sleep in my office uh, right outside the command center, be there. And you know what? Sometimes the hur hurricane took a turn uh, and completely missed it. I never felt like a fool for being prepared, for being ready, because most of the time it actually does come. And I think that's the thing here is we, we need to be prepared. Maybe we'll luck out. But then what you see is that sharp decline. Ah, now it's plateaued. And unfortunately, in the country, it plateaued at a higher level than the peak of our, our second peak. That's a bad sign. And then and so I was warning we may be seeing a fourth surge because we don't yet have enough people vaccinated and um, and we have all these variants. So we have to be prepared for it. I hope it doesn't happen. We need to get prepared. Um, and now uh, I was just uh, you, you follow my tweets. Uh, I think it was last night I, I showed that um, now the wastewater uh, levels of virus have doubled in Boise. That's usually a sign that we're seeing more disease. And so um, I think the biggest myth that we have to fight is that somehow we're at the end of this. We can now, you know, we're seeing governors uh, and mayors say, OK, don't worry about uh, the, the size of gatherings. You don't have to wear a mask. Uh, we can open everything up 100 percent. We're not through this yet. We're getting close. We're not through this yet. <clears throat> You know, what, what's interesting to me, David and Tommy, um, and both of you guys have been uh, very influential. I've learned a lot from you about the pandemic. But what's really interesting to me is, you know, I got to tell you, I am so anxious for this to be over. I am oh, yeah. so anxious when I see those numbers. I am so anxious when I hear the governor talk about the positivity rate being below five. Yep. I am so anxious to... Um, <clears throat> have the vaccine. I, I do not want to wear a mask anymore. I'm tired mm -hmm. of it. Uh, I, I'm not the only person that's in no. the state. On the other hand, if I can help 
keep people safe, if I can help getting uh, companies and small businesses back to work, if I can help making sure that my mid-90s parents are safe and secure uh, from me and from society, for that matter, uh, then I want to be a part of it. Uh, I don't understand. I'm a science guy. Uh, I'm not a scientist. I'm not suggesting I'm a scientist, but I believe in science. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine why we have outliers on some of these circumstances at this point. They, it really, actually, it really troubles me sometimes to think. And and you know, Tommy, you made a comment. I think you said the word a lot. There, are, there's a, there's a lot of myths. I think that there's not that many. I think that they just have a bigger platform uh, with social media and stuff like that. And I, but I do think they're outliers. And they, and it troubles me to think that they're a lot, not alive. I, I was going to say alive and well. That's the wrong connotation. But it troubles me to think that there, that there's a platform for some of this kind of outlier uh, science, even science that's outlier. Well, you know, Bill, uh, you bring up a, a, a really interesting point. And, and of course, uh, if you look at a lot of our industries, uh, look at the the industry that you led in uh, with Simplot. How much of the success of Simplot was due to advances in science? Uh, an awful yeah. lot. Uh, and, and, and same thing in medicine, same thing in a lot of things, uh, cars, uh, computers, all this stuff. And, you know, it's, I've thought about this a lot because, uh, it really has really surprised me. Some of the reactions that I've seen, uh, from people that I know that are reasonably educated, uh, and, I think it gets labeled as anti-science. I'm not so sure it is. Um, I'm uh, working on a book and I, I, I wrote, you know, we saw people pick and choose what parts of science they right. wanted to reject. We didn't see those that were rejecting this science saying, you know, I reject the laws of gravity and I'm now going to jump off of one of Tommy's buildings because there's no gravity. I mean, we didn't see that happening. So it wasn't a wholesale rejection of science. I think what it was, uh, interestingly, was I think it all comes down to this whole concept of individualism versus collectivism. And of course, our societies have been premised on the basis that we're all mutually willing to make some minor sacrifices because it helps others, but it also helps us. I mean, uh, the very reason, uh, you know, my personal freedom to have a loud party in my backyard at three o'clock in the morning does get infringed on. And we all agree to that because now I don't get bothered when my neighbor has a loud party at three o'clock in the morning. So it's, it, we have this notion that there's certain constraints that we put on people for the, for the good. And I liked how you phrased it, that you don't like a lot of these things. I don't like a lot of these things, but we do it because we know it's better for the collective good. And 
for people we care about. And somehow we're losing a lot of that. Uh, and, and it's interesting that uh, it goes back to a comment that Tommy made earlier when we were talking about um, <clears throat> my success and some other leaders' success as CEOs. I think a huge part of it is empathy. Because uh, uh, <clears throat> your employees can read right through you. They know whether you care or not. And, and we've seen leaders <clears throat> that appear to have little empathy. Uh, and by and large... The majority of people don't like those people. Aren't those aren't the people they'd want to sit down and have lunch with or talk to and so forth. And, and so I, I think that we do have a little bit of a crisis of a loss of empathy on the part of a lot of people. Yeah, that's true. Hey, hey David, let me let me ask a couple other real specific questions. So. I think you've uh, done a masterful job talking about the next surge, uh, why we think the variants that are in Idaho, I think we know that they're here, that they are different. It appears uh, from what we know that the vaccines that we're, we're giving do cover them. Let's get into the vaccines specifically with some very specific sure. questions. I think I continue to hear from <clears throat> folks that I just, I'm surprised by them that are saying, hey, this is, this is actually not a vaccine. Yeah. Um, this is genetically reprogramming our bodies. Uh, this is unproven. It's unsafe. It's unchartered territory. And when you hear some of those things from people that are in the healthcare uh, profession at whatever level or are respected in, in leaders saying those things, the downstream ripple effect of that affecting our population is, is really important to all of yeah. us. And, and if you look at, uh, you know, initially, I, I w my biggest concern all along has been, it seems like as a state, we are always six to 12 weeks behind where we should be all the time. So back when we first opened up vaccines, we should have been ready with the deluge of patients that wanted the vaccine. And now I promise you, I don't know when we're going to release this podcast, but by the time we release it, we know we're going to have the opposite problem where you're going to have vaccine that was distributed on a national program to pharmacies and to places where they can't get rid of it. And it's going to feel like, well, now there's too much vaccine. Well, I'm not so sure we, we've taken care of the people that want it, but yeah, uh, yeah. we will hit a point where we're going to have too much vaccine. And then we're going to have a problem of trying to convince all the people in the middle that are saying, boy, I'm hearing conflicting messaging on vaccines. There's going to be some folks that are never going to get this thing no matter what. But help us a little bit with those three questions is it a vaccine? Is it safe? And and is this technology something I could, this new medical technology of, of having mRNA, is this something that we should be, be telling people to do? Because we're going to go into a new phase of convincing people in the middle to get this vaccine for the good of the state, for the good of our businesses, for the good of our families. So long question, but you know where I'm getting at here. Yep. Well, and I think the answer to all three is yes. So let's just start out. Uh, is it a vaccine? It absolutely is. Uh, a, a vaccine is a, a something that we use to artificially stimulate the immune system to provide us protection uh, against uh, a, uh, a pathogen. And that's exactly what these do. And in fact, 
uh, Tommy, as you and I have talked, uh, it is wildly more effective than I think either one of us would have even dared to hope for. Uh, they're very effective. So, yes, they're definitely vaccines. The second part about, you know, is this going to, you know, we're messing with our um, our, our DNA, we're, we're, we're going to screw up our genetic uh, composition. And all. That's not correct. Um, so, uh, first of all, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine doesn't even uh, have uh, RNA in it. It's really the Pfizer and the Moderna. But messenger RNA, which is what's used in those vaccines, it gets uh, what what they do is they they the messenger RNA. The key thing about that is what it does is it just tells a cell to make the spike protein of the coronavirus, not the whole virus. You can't get infected by it because you're not creating the whole virus. You're just creating the spike protein. Why do we want to do that? Because the spike protein is not like anything we normally have in our bodies. So our immune system will recognize that as forum will mount an immune response against it. And then if we are exposed to the spike protein, with the real virus, uh, then our bodies will defend us from that. The way we do that is the mRNA, uh, messenger RNA, it, it, it gives the message to the cell's machinery that makes proteins to make the spike protein. And we surround it with some fat. And when what happens is if the when the vaccine gets injected and there's a cell, the cell will see it and, and the cell will swallow it up. The our DNA is in the nucleus, the center part of the cell. Uh, this mRNA doesn't go into the nucleus. It goes into the area outside of the nucleus in the cell where that machinery is. And it's a sufficient message to tell ourselves, make the spike protein. The other thing about it is our bodies destroy the, the messenger RNA very quickly. It does not hang around. Uh, so most everybody that's been uh, uh, vaccinated, that mRNA is already gone. Uh, what we're relying on is the fact that you've made the spike protein and now you have antibodies and then your cellular part of your immunity is all sensitized to it. So we're not altering your DNA. We're not altering your genetics. And yes, it is safe. And, and to your third point, you know, the thing that's different about this, Tommy, uh, you and I have given a lot of people vaccines. Uh, and you think about uh, there's a lot of vaccines that we use for special populations. Uh, so let's take the HPV vaccine, uh, for example, uh, the human papillomavirus vaccine. You know, that's a very small uh, group of of people that are candidates for that vaccine. And they do fine. It's a safe vaccine. Nobody's worried about uh, about that. This vaccine is for everyone in the world, uh, not kids yet, but that's coming. But already we're giving hundreds of millions of doses. And the thing, the, the couple of things about that and why people should be reassured about the safety is, is number one, just the huge, I mean, we have more people vaccinated with this vaccine than most vaccines that we use. So, uh, so if there's a problem, just statistically, we're going to see it. The second thing is when you look at the whole of vaccines, I, I don't think you can come up with a single example 
of where an adverse effect shows up more than two or three months later after your dose. Now, you can get an adverse problem that lasts longer than that, but it's not like you go for for six months and then all of a sudden we have a vaccine, a problem from the vaccine. That just doesn't happen. And what is exciting about this technology is this may offer us some of the best protection for future pandemics. And people need to understand this is not our last pandemic. Uh, we've already had four pandemics just in our lifetime. Uh, this is our fourth. There's going to be more. And the problem is, whereas uh, people have uh, really minimized this one, what if the next virus, and we know viruses that have mortality rates of not 1% to 2%, but 30, 50, 70. Uh, what if it's a real high mortality uh, 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 a pandemic the next time? The th great thing about the messenger RNA technology is our companies here in the United States could design the vaccine without even having a sample of the virus. All they needed was the genetic code, which was published at like the end of the first week of January. They could start making a vaccine without a virus sample. Now, previously, we've typically had to have virus samples. We've had to grow them on cell cultures and or eggs and things like that. This one, you don't have to. And so you can design a vaccine in months and that and then we can start getting the approval, get the production, get it out. This is going to help prepare us very well for future pandemics. So, you know, what's so this, go ahead, Bill. Uh, well, I was just going to say my daughter is uh, and David, you know, I think, Tommy, you do, too. She has her PhDs in uh, bioengineering and yep. um, or bioinformatics. I'm sorry, bioinformatics. And what's really interesting, she said, this is not really it's a new technology that we're using, but she said it's been worked on for a long time. She said when she oh, yeah. was working on her Decades. on her PhD, she said they used to talk to those that were working on mRNA. Yep. And they used to she said we used to joke with them about what are you guys ever gonna do with this stuff? And they said, Believe me, it'll there'll be a time and a place for it. We need target. And so we have a target. And it's and the, and it's being executed. We're executing against that target now. I think it's really interesting technology. Yeah, thank you, David. I, it is a great explanation. I would tell anyone listening when you hear myths out there, because it does affect people's lives. Just fast forward to this part of this podcast. Let that explanation sink in. It, it is it is safe. It is a vaccine. It, it, your your point, David. It's been given now millions of times. It's probably the most most studied at this point vaccine that we've had, even though it was quickly developed because we've given it to so many people and it's been so safe. And we all know we all know dozens of people in our own circles that have had it now and have done very well with it. So so I think all those things are very important. One last thing to get to, because I know we're running short on time, but uh, I've heard a couple of other things that really uh, it's a little frustrating to me. Um, uh, I've, I've heard people say, well, the real problem with the pandemic, and we wouldn't have had people die if we didn't have so much diabetes and obesity and all these other things, if we didn't have old people. And, and I'm like, okay, uh, you know, I don't know that I've heard anything dumber than that, but I'm like, yeah, we'll always have old people. We'll always have obesity. We'll always have diabetes. And sure, it would have been great to cure all those things and have healthier people with healthier immune systems, but that's not reality. And then the second thing is, None of us, David, and I know on the many times we've been together, we've always said 
exercise, fluids, vitamins, minerals, vitamin D, of course, anything that makes your immune system better is going to have you fight this off. But, but it's, it's not an either or thing. We need to take care of our bodies. Yes. We, need to, we need to take care of our immune systems. We need exercise. We need sunlight. We need vitamin D. And we need a vaccine. Yes. Right? And That's right. we needed to social distance at the right time. And I, and I watch some of these messages out there where they really prey on people that um, are trying to understand this and, 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 and really pick and choose how they want a message to really spin this in a way that, that is really unfortunate. So what I love about every time we talk about this is the clarity in which you're able to explain the science behind this, David. That's a gift. And, and I would encourage anybody out there to share this podcast with anyone that's questioning where, whether I should get it or if they've got a family member that may have gotten a little misinformation. It's a hard thing because you can't just disagree with somebody. you got to start from a point of common understanding and then say, hey, this is why we think it's a good thing. And I love the way you explain that and, and get that out. So I uh, very, very much appreciate that explanation. Bill, well, I thanks, give you Tommy. That's for the last last question here, because I think we got to wrap okay. up in the next few minutes. Okay. Well, real, real quickly. Hey, first of all, thank you. Uh, I heard Dave Jepson say yesterday that 60% of the state is committed to getting the vaccination. 20% yes. has it kind of under some level of um, uh, wondering if they should or not. And they're just going to mm -hmm. wait and see a little while. And there's 20% that's not. So the 80-20 rule is probably in play. And uh, what what could we look like if we could get 80% of the population vaccinated, let's just say by August 1st, what could we look like uh, in the fall and coming back into the spike season in the fall? <laughs> Uh, that's a great question, Bill. Let me uh, give one more caveat uh, to that. Uh, and what Director Jepson's talking about is the survey among adults. Right, uh, that's true. And we got to keep we got to we got to understand that when people talk about you know herd immunity and and getting to that in the denominator, you have to include everyone who can get infected and can transmit it. And that includes kids. And in Idaho, it's like 23.6% of our population is under the age of 18. Uh, now, 16 to 18 year olds can currently get um, are, are approved to get the, the one of the vaccines. But we're really if if we've got 60% of the adult population that is willing to get uh, vaccinated. Uh, and it'll be more because I think a lot of these hesitant people, they just want to see more people get immunized and then they're going to get immunized. I'm quite sure there's a lot of reasons we could talk about that later. But um, but if you only get 60 percent of uh, uh, the adults and, and it's interestingly, if you look at the you know, we're just getting at the end of the 65 and older, 53 percent of Idahoans over 65 have gotten vaccinated. That's not where we need to be, but it's kind of in line with that 60% number that Director Jepson was talking about. Plus, if we can't get kids, we're still going to have coronavirus. However, the more people we do get vaccinated, it doesn't mean that you don't get any benefit until you, you reach herd immunity. We will get benefit. What we should see is cases coming down, 
What we should see is less burden on the hospitals, fewer people getting admitted to the hospital, fewer people dying, especially because we prioritize that group of people in congregate living centers, which are the highest risk, like like our uh, nursing homes and those kinds of things. So we're going to see benefit. Uh, what I think is going to happen is uh, we're going to get a lot of high risk people vaccinated, although we need to understand there's a lot of people that have high risks that are less than 65, too, and we've got to get them vaccinated. Um, hopefully, the approval is going to come to start vaccinating those 11 and above around the summertime. And so I'm really hoping uh, it's going to depend on their parents. If their parents are in that 20 percent of, oh, heck no, uh, we're going to be in trouble. If their parents are in that 60 group, oh, heck yes, uh, then we're going to be good. It is paradoxical that some of the parents I hear yell the loudest about, I want my kids in school. I want to go to sports. I want to do all these things. And then, well, are you going to get the vaccine? Oh, no. Well, you can't have your cake and eat it too. We need people. If you want to get back to normal, you need to get vaccinated. But where I think we'll be is in a much better situation. Coronavirus will still be with us. Those that are high risk are still going to have to take precautions. Uh, we'll know by then what, what is going to happen with the variants and what kind of impact that's going to make. And, and we'll know confidently um, how well our vaccines are protecting against that. So I think we'll still have cases. We'll have to take some precautions. Uh, we may not be shaking hands or doing high fives. We may not be hugging uh, people. And I'm a hugger. I like to hug, but we probably won't be doing that. Um, and, and we'll be washing our hands more. And hopefully people will have learned if you're sick, please do everybody a favor. Stay home. You're not a hero going to work or going to school sick. So those kind of things are still going to be necessary. And, and we're going to have to observe because there might be isolated um, outbreaks, particularly uh, if there's certain populations of people, either by geography or by religion or what, whatever it is that decide, no, we're not getting the vaccine. We, we could see pockets of outbreaks uh, and we're going to have to watch those and all. But I do think this fall school will get much more. It won't be normal, but it'll be much more normal. Right. Good. Yeah. Yeah, David. So um, listen, I one thing I know is going to happen is uh, there's going to be information flowing at us fast and furious. Yes. For any, anyone listening out there that doesn't follow <clears throat> Dr. Pate on Twitter, it's at Dr. Pate's blog. So D-R-P-A-T-E-S-B-L-O-G. He also has a blog link that's right there at the top of his profile. Uh, that's fantastic reads that goes dives even deeper into a lot of these topics we're talking about. Um, one thing I'm certain of, David, is that uh, nobody reads the medical literature more than you. Nobody, <laughs> no, nobody understands it better than you. And I have appreciated going to you as my go-to source as you interpret all this for, for us as a community. Um, we really appreciate you. Uh, thank you for what you do. We, we, we appreciate you and your family so much. Tell them thank you. Because I know there's a lot of, a lot of yes. long days and nights you spend yes. in that, that office of yours. And then maybe just a little uh, human uh, human part of this whole thing at the end of it. Uh, uh, you know, I think uh, I think one of the things that I watch you do that, listen, I, 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 I will forever be grateful for you is the individual people you're helping in our state. It's not just like you're blogging this out or tweeting this out. I know how much effort you're taking to help these individual families and these these folks that need help. 
And uh, that, that goes right back to the heart of the matter, Dr. Pate, that why you went into medicine, why you care about people. And it, it sure shown during this. And uh, we just love and appreciate you, appreciate the friendship. And thanks for coming on, on our show. That does it for today. Uh, uh, go out and find someone and inspire them and let your, uh, let your uh, influence be felt in our community. We appreciate you joining us today. David, thank you, my friend. We appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Bill and Tommy. It's been a pleasure. And, and Tommy, thank you for all that you've done for Idaho. It's been incredible. You've been listening to the Inspire Excellence Podcast. We hope you've heard something today that will inspire you to make a difference in the world. Join us again for our next episode. Oh, 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 oh,